This is recording number 11092 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, February 23, 2014. This is the second message in a series titled, Unleashing the Power of Family. This message by Randy Bolt is titled, Liberty from the Legacy. Freedom from the Fallout of Family Dysfunction. What I need for you to do is, and I'm not sure how possible this is going to be on your, uh, on your electronic device, but I need for you to get to Ephesians chapter 5. And Ephesians is a little tiny book in the New Testament part of the Bible. And if you need to, be sure and use this incredibly valuable resource in the Bible called the Table of Contents. Find the book of Ephesians and turn to chapter 5. And then bookmark it or stick a donut in there to mark your place or something. And then turn to Romans chapter 7. We're going to start in Romans chapter 7, but we'll be going to Ephesians chapter 5 in a little bit. Yes. Now, um, today we're going to continue or pick up where we uh, left off. Two weeks ago we began a new series of messages called Unleashing the Power of Family. Um, we were interrupted last week, a good interruption. Our uh, district supervisor, Ron Pinkston, was here to speak to us, and uh, that was a, a delight for, for us. Um, but we're going to pick up where we left off, which is actually su- picking up where we left off two years ago. Two years ago, we did a series of messages called Unleashing the Power of Family, and the, the subject matter about family life, because families are they're configured so differently, and there's so many different subjects that, that uh, uh, bear upon family life, that we, we just scratched the surface in about, I forget how many messages, it was six or seven or eight, something like that. And so, now I'm picking up where we left off two years ago to kind of explore some of the other subjects having to do with family life that we didn't get to then. Have I lost you, or are you still kind of with me? <laughs> <laughs> she knows. <laughs> um, and uh, today I want to talk to you about liberty from the legacy. Excuse me. Liberty from the legacy. And then here is the, the creme de la creme, the, the subtitle. Freedom from the fallout of family dysfunction. Wow. I worked hard on that. <laughs> so... Just probably ought to say it again, but I won't. I won't bother. <laughs> now, usually when we think about family issues, and if you if you were invited to come to um, hear somebody talk about family life, uh, you would expect to hear things about how husbands and wives ought to get along, and how uh, parents and ought to parent, uh, parent their kids, and things like that. And that's all true. And we've dealt with a lot of those things, and will as we make our way through this series, but today I want to talk to you about something that's common to every single one of us. Because let's just admit it, every single one of us in this room comes from a dysfunctional family. And we are making dysfunctional families. (laughs) Right? Because we are imperfect, we are sinners saved by grace, but uh, 
Now, not, n- none of us are perfect. So. And so it's common to every single one of us that we are dealing with the fallout of that environment that, you know, our families were not perfect. And that fallout can be fairly devastating. And uh, so I want to dive into this subject with you and see what the Bible has to say about it because it says a lot. And because God uh, cares about you, he cares that you experience the power of family as he intended it to be. He intended family to be a power for great good and, and uh, of wholeness and health and healing to your life. Sin, and as, it's work, as it works its way out through all of us, and it has corrupted that. And so often, the enemy, the devil, takes what God is able to take what God has intended for such good and twist it around and becomes something that is pushing us, empowering uh, not so good things in our lives. And uh, I just feel like the Lord might want to speak into that today so that there could be a fresh release of the power of family as he intended it in your life. In Romans chapter 5, I didn't ask you to turn there because I have it on the screen. In Romans chapter 5, it says this, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That one man was Adam. And I'm not pointing any blame to him. I'm certain that if I was on the scene in the Garden of Eden, things wouldn't have worked out much better. But it says that one man's disobedience uh, has caused sin to... Uh, be unleashed and its impact on us all. Our forefather, our ultimate forefather, Adam, behaved in such a way that we are all adversely affected by it. You hear what I'm saying? But then it goes on in that verse and says, so also by one man's obedience, that's Jesus Christ. So what Adam unleashed on his progeny, all of us, his family, in terms of sin, one man's obedience, the cross of Christ, through that many will be made righteous. Now, I I don't mean to undermine or demean in any way or trivialize what we just read and how it, and, and there isn't any Savior but one, Jesus Christ, but I got to say that I believe that there is the potential for for God to do kind of the same thing in our families where what was unleashed by someone farther up the chain in terms of dysfunction and impact that is corrupting those who have followed there can be a point where God so moves in our lives that that there we have the opportunity to change the nature of things just as Christ has changed the nature of things and made possible healing for all of us in terms of sin. Are you with me? So because that's true, we're diving into this subject today and I'm going to talk to you a lot about the the word addiction. Now most of us, when we think of the word addiction, we think of it in terms of somebody shooting heroin up their arm or or, uh, strung out on some other kind of narcotic or, you know, a, a, an alcoholic or something like that where there's actual uh, tobacco, where there's an actual physical um, 
uh, addiction. Uh, you know, they, 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 um, they can't break that habit. And it's not just a habit. The body craves it and all that. You, that's mostly how we understand addiction. But the, the word, if you look it up in the, in the dictionary, is much broader than that. And, and for our purposes today, I'm going to broaden it out. Because I believe that, that the term addiction applies to much more than most of us are willing to admit. I asked you to turn to Romans chapter 7. Look there with me at verse 15 where it says this. Paul the Apostle. This is Paul the Apostle he's saying. He's speaking. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, what I want to do, the person I want to be, the way I want to make my way through this world, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. That sounds like addiction to me. What I want to do, I am incapable of doing. I can't do it. I end up doing the things I hate. There are undoubtedly stuff, there, there is undoubtedly stuff in your life of a similar nature. When you find yourself responding cruelly or insensitively to your spouse, and you think, why did I do that? Why did I do that again? I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that way. The, but the thing that I want to do, I don't do. And the thing that I hate, that's what I find myself doing. And all of us, whether all of us understand that sort of tug of war that goes on inside of us. And it can be about so many different things. I could give you lots of illustrations from my own life, but just for the sake of my own vanity, I won't tell you a, a, a rather trivial account. Is that all right? There was a period of time. It's a little trivial, but it was true as well. There was a period of time in my life when I was addicted to uh, Dr. Pepper. Wow. I know. I could not pass a 7-Eleven without going in. It started with a gulp, you know, the little cup. <laughs> but, but it gradually developed into the big gulp, and then the family gulp, and then whatever it is that you carry home in a pail, you know, that... <laughs> I was going through a period of time, as a partic I mean, I didn't realize it, you know, I didn't put two and two together at the time. But I was going through a particularly stressful period in my life and there was stuff going on and I found myself craving that, that one or two minute diversion, comfort that I got from that sugar rush. The sweetness of that liquid for a brief moment sort of took my thoughts away and my emotions someplace else but what I was dealing with. I didn't realize it at the time until one day I was... I was driving down the road and there was a 7-Eleven that came up and I just found myself pulling in there. I didn't even think about it. I was just going there. And I realized, wait a minute. And then, you know, it's really weird. The next time I'm the same kind of thing, I'm driving, because 7-Elevens are everywhere, right? So I'm just driving along and I see when I find myself veering there and it's like, no, 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 no. You know, I mean, it was hard. Now, I don't want to, again, I don't want to trivialize this, but I think you can relate to what I'm talking about. We don't like to admit, what we think is, oh, well, this is just a matter of willpower, you know. 
I just, I'm just going to, I'll change this. It's no big deal. But many of us know what it's like to feel powerless against something as simple as that. Because it's dealing with an issue. It's, it's um, self-medicating an issue much deeper. And most often those deeper issues come from the fallout of our family dysfunction. Not always, but much of the time. And I'm talking to you about this stuff today because as a pastor, this is where most of the stuff that I deal with with people comes from. So I'm going to talk to you today about addiction. And I'm going to ask you the question right now, are you addicted given the definition I've just given and the illustration I've just given? And what I'm going to put on the screen now are some questions that people in the, in the um, mental health uh, uh, arena used to help people come to an awareness about their addiction. If you answer positively to one, to three, excuse me, three or more of these, they say whatever that thing is, is addict, you are addicted to. So have in your mind the thing that just came up when I was talking about big gulps. When I was talking about Paul saying the thing I don't want to do, that's what I always do. The thing that came up in your mind Look, I know a guy who ruined his marriage because he was addicted to baseball. He was on three or four teams at once and he, and he just never paid any attention to his wife even though he desperately wanted to be different than that. He didn't want to be that guy. But something on the ball field was helping him deal with some pain in his heart and he couldn't give it up. Whatever the thing is for you, have that in your mind as I put these on the screen. I experience nervousness or other signs of withdrawal whenever I don't indulge in this behavior. I have deliberately abstained from or cut back on it just, so I, just to prove that I can. After I've abstained and assured myself I can quit, I go back to it. I have developed a level of tolerance for it and now I must do more of it to attain the previous level of satisfaction. I have a sense of power or comfort when I do it. It allows me to retreat from the real world and all of its troubles. I think about doing it even when I'm not. Well-meaning friends are suggesting that I give it up. It is harming me because it is taking up too much of my time, thought, energy, and other resources. People around me are suffering negative consequences because I do it. And finally, I find myself promising that I'll stop or cut back. On doing it, if that's true, if three of three or more of those things are true for you, pretty serious um, uh, chance that that thing you are addicted to, and the Lord wants to set you free from that. Not just because look, what people do is they'll trade one addiction for another. They'll figure out somewhere they'll go through some twelve-step group or whatever, and they'll get you know, or just exercise a serious amount of willpower and stop doing something. But unless you deal with the, the, the fallout of family dysfunction that's down in there causing that thing that you're trying, pain that you're trying to medicate, you'll just trade that addiction for something else. It'll show up somewhere else. And so I want to talk to you about the roots of that a little bit further and then, uh, thank God, um, you know, I forgot to finish my reading in Romans chapter 7 and that would be a good thing because I didn't want to leave you there in Paul's dark place. 
Verse 24 of Romans chapter 7. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body, this body of death? We all know what that feels like. Oh, wretched man, I hate myself for this. I don't want to be this guy. Who will deliver me? Who will? It's, notice it's not which book will deliver me, which self-help group will deliver me, which way of thinking will deliver me. No, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's where we're going to get to. All right, I want to talk to you about under... Uh, the, the theme, a distorted perspective about exposures, assumptions, and vows. Yesterday I was watching the uh, Olympics, or last night, and they told a story about <clears throat> a guy named Steve Holcomb, who is a bobsledder. And uh, in, uh, in Vancouver, four years ago, he ended a medal drought for the United States in the four-man bobsled, a 62-year drought, and he won a gold medal. Uh, this year already he's won... Um, uh, a medal in two-man bobsled, and the uh, you know because of the timing and everything, the the competition may be over. But uh, his four-man bobsled competition was concluding today, and I don't know the outcome. But they told a story about him I thought was interesting last night because they said that he went through a period of time where he was losing his eyesight. In fact, it was so bad that he couldn't see his hand in front of his face, and he's driving. <laughs> He's driving a bobsled with three guys in the back. He could do some serious damage. And he, he finally said, I can't, he couldn't live with himself because he wasn't telling anybody. Because he knew if he said anything, as he's losing his eyesight, his career is over. And he loves bobsledding. And what else would he do? And all that kind of stuff. So bad. He got so bad that he tried to commit suicide. Eventually, he did own up to it. And, and uh, some help. Because I thought he was going to have to have the only solution would be cornea transplants. It turns out that... He was able to find a doctor who implanted um, contact lenses in his eyes. And he said it was like this. He had 20-20 vision from I can't see my hand in front of my face to 20-20 vision. But he said that the weird thing was I got out on the, on the slider or sliding thing, whatever it is they, they do their track, sliding track is probably what it's called, where they do their bobsledding. And he said, I was driving like a crazy person. I, even though I could see crystal clear now, I was bumping into everything and all over the track, and I was, not, I was terrible. Because now he could actually see where he couldn't see before. And he said, this is how I solved it. I got an old visor, an old mask. It was all scratched up and dirty. And I put that on my head so that I was kind of not being able to see real clearly, and that helped him straighten out my bobsledding. <laughs> All right, the reason I'm telling you this story is because when Jesus, when you come to faith in Christ, it, the Bible says it's as though the lights come on. We sing that song, Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. But having come to uh, being able to see for, you know, the truth and to see Christ and his purposes clearly for the first time in your life, it's amazing how, how often we revert back to what we know. What we were modeled in through our families. What our previous experiences have been because that's what we know. That's how we know how to navigate life. And um, so when I talk about exposures, I'm talking about things that, have been, that you've been exposed to in your family. The assumptions that you can make based on that. 
and the vows that flow out of that that corrupt our lives. This is going to be a bit of an eye chart. You're not going to be able to probably even read all this stuff, but I'll make my way through it. I'll make it, I'll make it quick. And mainly what I'm trying to do is just, it's not an exhaustive list, but I want you to kind of get the idea of where this stuff comes from. Instability. If in your family life you were exposed to a, an environment, a culture that was just unpredictable, chaotic, unstable, and this is often the, true, often the case where there's you know, an, an alcoholic or drug-addicted um, parent where you don't know if mom's going to be sober when you get home or not, if she's going to be a, a, a nice drunk or a wicked, you know, you, you don't know, and so everything is insecure. If you're exposed to that kind of environment, you can make the assumption, well, my life is just out of control. I must control my world. How many of us in this room and people we know deal with control issues? I got my hand up because I'm one of them. That's where that comes from. Abuse. If you were exposed to abuse of any sort in your family life, you can make the, assert, the assumption, I'm a bad person. All these people that are authorities in my life, they're abusing me, so I must be a bad person. The vow is I must punish myself. Have you ever wondered why either you or someone you know seems to just keep making the same stupid bad decisions over and over that hurt themselves? And often it's because they can't imagine that anything good uh, would be, that they would be worthy of. And so they just keep fulfilling. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Marital strife, or there's divorce, or parents that aren't getting along. The assumption that a kid can make is, I've failed. I'm responsible. And make a vow, I must succeed by any means. Some of the most driven people in our world come out of that environment. I have to, I have to succeed. Uh, embarrassment, where you're... You know, my, my family could never get anywhere on time. And it was an embarrassment to me. I was always the last one to show up. I was always the last one to get picked up from school and all that kind of stuff. It was an embarrassment to me. And the assumption is, I'm a joke. See, we personalize this stuff. And you're a little kid, you don't know otherwise. I'm a joke. And the vow is, I must do whatever it takes to fit in. Poverty, if you, you know, whether it's just because you... You know, if the circumstances outside of your control or your parents or whoever you were living with didn't know how to manage their money, but you always felt like there was never enough, I'm unworthy. The vow, I must prove my value. Depression, somebody is clinically depressed. I mean, the deep, dark stuff. The assumption is my life is hopeless. The vow you can make is I must not dream. Secrecy, where there's families, you know, we, we have these things, we don't talk about them. The assumption is I need to be ashamed. We have stuff in our family that we don't talk about because we must be, you know, we're ashamed of it. The vow, I must avoid intimacy because if I'm intimate with someone, they will find this out about me or about us. Detachment where, you know, there's no, um, in, no deep interaction between members of a family. We just keep arm's distance with each other. Uh, the assumption you can make is, well, people don't like me, and the vow, I must not depend on others. If you're exposed to a silent family, you know the kind that don't talk about anything? Assumptions, my feelings don't matter, because if they did, somebody would ask me about them. Vow, the vow, I must stuff my feelings. They're not worthy, not valuable anyway, so I'll just stuff how I feel. 
indecision, you know, the family where, what do you want to have for dinner? I don't know, what do you want to have for dinner? What do you want to watch on TV? I don't know, what do you want to watch? Nobody can ever come to a decision. The assumption is I'm incompetent. We can't, we can't figure out how to do this life thing. The vow, I must avoid making choices. Rigidity, where there's just no grace, no mercy, where there's just this hard, fast, uh, I mean, you know, um, you got to toe the line to a set of rules and regulations that are just uh, demanded with a heavy hand. The assumption is I'm a, I'm a prisoner and the, the vow, I must break free. I've got to get out of these constraints. A failure where, you know, there's been uh, a loss of a, of a business or you lost your home or, you know, something went really bad. Uh, I'm incapable and the vow, I must not take risks. Trauma, you know, uh, death in the family, um, some serious debilitating illness or injury, you know, impacts the family. Uh, the assumption is, well, God doesn't love me. I mean, if he did, how could he let this happen? The vow, I must avoid God. This is not an exhaustive list by any means, but it's just to give you an idea of where some of this stuff comes from and why it might be that as we've inherited this kind of legacy, we, we might have to find ways of medicating that pain. And now I want to talk to you about the cycle of addiction because uh, understanding how it works can set up our availability to what God wants to do in changing that. It begins with a distorted perspective. And then that is exploited by the enemy to create pain. You know, it's, we have... The devil is not... He doesn't play fair. You've heard us say that before. He doesn't play fair. And it's not like he goes, oh, well, you know, that person uh, was abused as a child. They've probably had enough pain in their life. I'll leave them alone. Uh-uh. He says, oh, target of opportunity. And stabs and, and, and twists the knife to make that as, as painful as possible. So the distorted perspective that we come out of our family lives with, he wants to exploit that to create pain. And then he wants to seduce us to self-medicate, to deal with that pain ourselves. And we will try all different kinds of things. And I've already talked about that. And then he will accuse us for self-medicating and cause us to experience shame for what we've done or what we do. And then that place of shame, we can't, none of us can stay there. It's just so crippling to our lives that he'll offer then a justification, a path of justification. Well, it's really not your fault. It's so-and-so's fault. And this really isn't a problem anyway. Those people, they have, they're just having a problem with this. It's not really a problem for you. you. You can manage this. You get what I'm saying? You justify it. And what does that lead to? That leads to denial. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And when he gets you there, you're just... You're that far from the cycle being complete that will just send you spinning around this, this little circle again and again and again. And that last link is reactivation. He'll come at you and, and poke at that place that causes you pain for the express purpose that you'll start back around. Seduce you to self-medicate, 
accuse you to shame, justify you to denial, and they just spin around and around and around. That's the cycle of addiction. I want to thank God along with you that there is a process of recovery. And it begins with an unlikely thing. It begins with conviction. I think most people would think, well, the last thing I need when I'm caught up in a cycle of addiction is for conviction. Because we always think of conviction as a bad thing. It's God telling me what a rotten creep I am. Dear one, conviction is always, should always be welcomed. Because can the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is simply causing our eyes to be opened and our ears to hear what's true. God's saying, look, let's don't live in denial about this anymore. Let me into this. We need to fix this. And conviction will always lead to confession. Dear ones, don't miss this because a lot of times what ends up happening when people find themselves in this situation is they think, well, you know, um, it was somebody else's fault. You know, they, my, my mother did this or my dad did that or my whatever happened to me, the government did this, whatever. Place blame on someone else. But the, the desire for, the, for self-pity will not lead you out of bondage. It's when you face the wrong you have done in response to the wrong done to you that health, healing, wholeness will come. It's at that point when you say, yes, some terrible thing was passed down to me, but I have done this in response to that. I'm responsible for this before God. When I get that confessed out of, when I get that vomited up out of my soul, oh, man, what can follow is so amazing. The receiving of the forgiveness of God and the resulting ability to be able to forgive those who have mistreated you or hurt you or are responsible. Now, and forgiveness is a big subject and I don't have time to deal with it now. And I know that even, even mentioning the fact that a process of recovery would involve forgiving someone for the horrific stuff they've done to you might just send you, just shut you down right now and you won't hear anything more that I say. I understand that. But look, when you hold unforgiveness towards someone, the only person being hurt by that is you. You're not balancing the scales. You're not inflicting punishment on them. It's just hurting you. And for the Lord to bring you to a place where you're able to release them, not... not uh, condone it, not excuse it, not pretend it didn't happen, but release them from, having, from you having to hold on to them in unforgiveness and inflict some sort of payment on them that you think you are. When you can let go of that and, and just be free to forgive, it, it, it unleashes all kinds of great things beginning with a righteous perspective that brings edification, building up in the faith that God begins to work in me and brings wholeness to my life and liberty to, instead of self-medicate, to serve. Instead of being self-focused and trying to deal with my pain, I get to be someone who is representing Jesus in this world. That brings direction and focus to my life and the fulfillment that God intends. I know that this is rather simplistic, I understand that I'm dealing with a big subject and I'm only talking about a very thin slice of this subject. 
But I think that it's worthy for us to consider, uh, to consider it even at this kind of high level. Turn to Ephesians now, chapter 5, where I asked you to be ready to go to earlier. Because I want to talk to you about being filled with the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. See then that you walk or live circumspectly or carefully, not as fools but as wise, redeeming or buying back the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine. And this is not a, this is not a message, nor this is a passage about whether or not, you know, we, are, we, we should be drinking alcoholic beverages, all right? So just put that aside. This is about self-medication, because being drunk with wine is self-medicating. He says, don't be drunk with wine. Don't self-medicate. Whatever it is that you're using to, to deal with your stuff, don't. But be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Well, that's easy for you to say, Pastor, but I don't even know what that means. What does that mean, to be filled with the Spirit? Well, I mean, it means a lot of things, and I don't have time to talk about it all, but to me, it comes down to something very simple. You know, Sue and I have been living in this house on Mare Island that, for the last eight years where we have a shower that's big enough actually for me to walk around in. First time in our lives. And, and um, I, I, I can actually stand outside of the stream from the shower head. Now, it's much better if I get under the stream, under the flow of the water, right? I, get, I feel clean. I feel warm. I feel, I want to start singing in the shower, you know, right? It's a great place to be. But I've noticed in my own life and I've noticed in the lives of other people when it comes to the fountainhead of God's spirit that he wants to pour out in my life, I will often have come to experience it and like, whoa, this is really great. But man, it's, I don't know, it's like too much. And we kind of step out and kind of watch it for a while. <laughs> what, what sense does that make? Let's just get under there and stay there. <laughs> How hard can that be? Be where God is. Be doing what he's doing. Listen to what he's saying. Let him work in your life. Just stay under the shower. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And he says, don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, which means... When you do that, when you self-medicate, the person he meant for you to be is being washed out, yeah. diluted. Don't do that. Be filled with the Spirit. And then he says, this is what will result. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And he said, when you are filled with the Spirit, it restores the poetry to our lives. The symmetry, the balance, the rhythm, the creativity. The, you know, it's, that's what God wants to restore to you. And then it says, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He removes the, the replaces the pain in our souls. When you reach that place where the, where the moving of the Holy Spirit in your life can bring you to be grateful. Not grateful for what happened or what wasn't done but grateful 
that God has encountered your life and that God is at work in your life now. And that in ways that are beyond comprehension, he can begin to reach back and, and heal and recover what's back there too. When you reach that point of gratitude, the poison, the poison of the past is draining out. And then he says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. One of the things that is the, re that is the result of our mutual addictions is that they isolate us from each other. I can't get too close to you because then you might see mine. And you don't want me to get too close to you because then I might see yours. And so because of fear and other things of, of being exposed to stuff, we end up living our lives kind of in a disconnected way where we control the, we, can, we think we can control the, how we're presented. And, and he says, look, when the Holy Spirit is being poured out in your life, he said, I can remove the poison from your relationships, submitting to one another in the fear of God. <clears throat> I think that sounds a whole lot better than addiction.